You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. pressure on them to get them back, to bring them back to him. And God does that sometimes. He puts pressure and he wants people to come back. When Elisha told the woman whose son had been restored life that a famine was coming, he didn't say, here, here's a miracle to get you through it. Remember, Elijah gave the lady a miracle to get her through the famine. No, he said, you better get out of here. What does this tell me? What does this tell me? What it tells me is you can't put God in a box. Do you ever feel like your life is under pressure? It is tempting to think that this pressure is just an inconvenience rather than God using it to bring you closer to himself. Today in his message, Pastor Dave walks us through the various trials God's people had to endure in the Old Testament, but they were for their good. Now here's Pastor Dave in the book of 2 Kings chapter 8 as he begins his message, The Greatness of God Compared. Second Kings chapter 8. Let's pray, if you will, please. Let's bow our hearts before our Lord. Gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. What a joy it is, Lord, to stand before you. Oh, Lord, we're so grateful to you. Help us, Lord, now to focus on you through your word. Help us, Lord, to open our ears and our hearts to receive whatever you might want to talk to us about through this message in Second Kings, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for this time that we have. So, Lord, we give you praise and we give you glory. We look forward to what you're going to do in our hearts through this study. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I was preparing tonight's study, it's a history lesson. First, 2 Kings is a history book. And I started thinking about the different forms of literature in the Bible. The Bible is a very unique and diverse and rich of literary forms with one message. It has a unique message. But those literary forms explain the human experience from a divine perspective, if you will. Throughout the Bible, you can see these kind of things, figurative language. You can see history, poetry, literature. You see literature about wisdom and prophecy. You have the Gospels, which are historical accounts of the life and death of Jesus Christ. All the Bible has oratory speeches where various men inspired by the Holy Spirit speak of God's words. We have teachings by Jesus Christ. Then we have the epistles, letters written by men who followed Jesus and men who were touched by the Holy Spirit and they explain his teachings and how we can apply them to our lives. The Bible was penned by men, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. They wrote down what they see, what they heard, and what they experienced through the Holy Spirit. We have that in front of us today in in God's Word, and it's been kept in such a pristine state. We're thankful the Jews who were given the responsibility to keep this the way it is, kept it. It was so difficult for them to transcribe this, that these people who were writing it down, you wouldn't believe what they had to go through. First of all, they had to cleanse themselves 
they had to go through a ceremony cleansing, and then they had to sit down in this chaste atmosphere, and they began to write. They had someone looking over their shoulder. And if they made a mistake, he ripped out the scroll, tore it in pieces, and sent them back, and they had to cleanse themselves again. And then they came back, and they rewrote it. And you think, well, that's a lot of things. And the theory is that, well, man doctored this thing since it was written. That's, you know, that's what you get all the time. Well, it's written by man. Well, that might have been the thought before 1940s or 50s, whenever it was. I forget when it was. I, I should know that. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found a scroll of Isaiah. And it was the earliest scroll that they had of Isaiah was some almost a thousand years from Isaiah. But when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they came within a couple hundred years of Isaiah. Just a couple hundred years. And they took it and they looked and they read through it. And it was exactly, exactly word for word what we have today. So... Bible is a powerful, powerful tool. Now we've been studying the book of 2 Kings, and it's a historical count of the divided kingdoms of Israel. But within this historical count, what I'm trying to get at, though, although the Bible has all of these things in there, there are many, so many spirit-filled lessons that we can glean from. So many lessons that we can glean from and then apply to our own lives, even in the Old Testament. Even in the Old Testament. And as we come into tonight's study, we're reminded that the kings of the northern kingdom, remember Jeroboam, Omri, and Ahab, were the most wicked kings that the kingdom ever had. And, and they led this northern kingdom of Israel into idolatry. And each one of them was worse than the next. Each one of them disregarded God's law. Each one of them pumped up Baal and worshipped an idol and, and worshipped all sorts of foreign things. Jehoram, king of the southern kingdom of Judah, marries the daughter of Ahab. And what does he do? Because of her influence, he introduces the worship of Baal into the southern kingdom. So one is no better than the other one. Both kingdoms are in rebellion against the Lord. They're committing what is called spiritual adultery because they're going after foreign gods. Both kingdoms were polluted by idolatry. But the Lord's word will not be mocked. As they are going against his rules and they are going against his commandments, they are heaping up the Lord's judgment upon them. And as we get into this section of 2 Kings, we're going to see this judgment play out. We're going to see the things that happened to them. One of the Lord's judgments to the nation basically said, if you don't follow me, if you don't keep my commands, I will make your land barren. I will make your land barren. And as we begin, we see an encounter between Elisha and the Shunammite woman, you remember 2 Kings 4 describes Elisha's previous dealings with this woman? She and her husband were godly and generous people who helped the prophet. And through Elisha's prayer, they were blessed with the son, remember? When the son suddenly died, he was brought back to their life miraculously by the hand of God, showed grace and mercy. So as we come to the first part of chapter 8, we see the greatness of God. We see the greatness of God. Let's look at verse 1. 
Then Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go, you and your household, and stay wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and furthermore, it will come upon the land for seven years. And remember, seven is God's number for completeness. It's God's perfect number. And I remember I told you a minute ago that the Lord in his commandments said, One of the ways you will be judged by having a barren land, which leads to famine. A barren land leads to famine. So you remember that day when Elijah and God set a famine that lasted for three and a half years when we studied Elijah. Here in the day of Elisha, another famine comes, but it's double that. It's really interesting when you think about it. Because Elisha asked for a double portion of God's spirit, didn't he? And everything Elisha did was double that of the Lord's. Elijah did eight miracles. Elisha did 16. So now all of a sudden, Elijah prophesied that a a famine would come. It lasted for three and a half years. And now it's doubled with Elisha. And it's seven years. It's very interesting. But the Lord is working here. The northern kingdom is in rebellion. And they've been in rebellion for a while, and God is now implying and increasing pressure for them. Let me ask you a question. Why would God increase pressure on them? What was his purpose in bringing the famine? What was his purpose in bringing this pressure on them? That they would call out, that they would repent. If my people who are called by my name would turn from their wicked ways, would pray, would, you know, the whole thing in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. Yeah. God's putting a pressure on them to get them back, to bring them back to him. And God does that sometimes. He puts pressure and he wants people to come back. When Elisha told the woman whose son had been restored life that a famine was coming, he didn't say, here, here's a miracle to get you through it. Remember, Elijah gave the lady a miracle to get her through the famine. No, he said, you better get out of here. What does this tell me? What does this tell me? What it tells me is you can't put God in a box. You cannot put God in a box. Because he worked one way one time doesn't necessarily mean he'll work the same way the next time. I can prove it. Go to your Gospels and look at Jesus and the blind men. Every blind man that Jesus healed, he healed differently. Every single one. And I'm sure... After the first time he healed someone of the blind man, I'm sure that the disciples, when they come up to a new blind man, started talking among themselves. Watch this. He's going to touch his eyes and he's going to heal him. And then when Jesus spit in the ground, he went, whoa. Then the next time they saw a blind man, watch this. He's going to spit in the mud. And he spit right in his eyes. Whoa. You can't put God in a box. You cannot put him in a box. Now, can you expect him to act? Absolutely. Absolutely, you can expect God to act, but he doesn't always act the same way. And we see this right here. He doesn't always act the same way. You've tried to formulize God. Well, God will have nothing to do with that. And if you do that, you're going to have nothing but frustration. When you read God's word, one thing I found out about God's word, it doesn't have a 15-step procedure to follow. There aren't 25 steps to this or 47 steps to that. God gives you a command and tells you to believe. This is how it works. And as you move forward, guess what? He shows you the specifics. He shows you what needs to be done and how to do it. 
And it's easier for him to work when you're moving forward than it is when you're sitting back. Easier to, for you to, when you move forward in faith and step out in faith and believe than it is for you to sit in back. Okay, God, show me. You might be waiting there a long time. Why? Because he wants to hear from you. He wants to have fellowship with you. That's why he saved you. He wants to spend time with you so he can guide you through his day. So Elijah speaks a word of knowledge to the woman and she reacts accordingly. Look at verse two. In verse two, she wisely does what Elisha said. So the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God. And she went with her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines seven years. She goes to a foreign land where there's not a famine and she dwells for seven years. Remember, seven is the number of completion. Now, she's had success following Elisha, remember? She had a son when he said he was going to have a son. Her son was restored to life when he died. So she knows that when Elijah speaks, she's going to listen and she's going to obey. Well, we've had success with God. Each one of us has had success with God and God has spoken to our hearts. So why do we put him to the test every single time? Why do we always say, I don't believe that? That's not going to happen. That may be happen for them, but it didn't happen for me. No, we need to believe and step out in faith. So she's there. So she wants to return. Seven years are over. She wants to come back to her land, but she wants her land back. She left land there and she wants it back. So let's read verse three. It came to pass. There's that wonderful, wonderful Phrase and it came to pass at the end of seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines and went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. Upon leaving Israel and going to the land of the Pharisees, she forfeited her land and she lost her claim to the ancestral land. She made an appeal so she would not be a loser for listening to God's prophet and saving her family from famine. Now, You already should know the results of this because she obeyed God. And you know that when you obey God, there's always a good outcome. There's always a good outcome. She was obeying God. The man of God said, go. She said, ooh, man of God said, go. I go. So she had that down. So let's look at four through six. We'll finish out this part. Then the king talked to Gehazi. Who? Gehazi? The servant of the man of God saying, tell me please all the great things Elisha has done. Oh man. Now it happened as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead to life, that there was the woman whose son he had restored to life, appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, my lord, O king, this is the woman. And this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, so the king appointed a certain officer for her saying, restore all that she had, all that was hers and all the proceeds of the field from the day that she left The land until now, wow. By God's grace, by God's mercy, everything is restored to her. Gehazi. Hmm. Didn't we read something about Gehazi a while back? Hmm. In 2 Kings 5, anybody remember what happened to Gehazi? Leprosy. Leprosy because he went out after Naaman, right? Naaman wanted to give Elisha a gift. For healing him. And Elisha wouldn't accept it. But Gehazi had plans. So he went out and followed. And he got the gift. And because he got the gift, 
Elisha said, well, you know, you got the gift, but that leprosy is going to come on you and, and his descendants. And if you remember, when we talked about the great famine with the lepers, we thought that it's believed that those lepers were Gehazi and his children. It seems strange that the afflicted leper would talk to the king. It seems strange. Well, either that Gehazi was granted a hearing that actually took place, or did these events take place around chapter 5? So what am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is there's a possibility that the king was talking to Gehazi from afar. There's also a possibility that the writer of 2 Kings didn't follow any chronological order. He's just telling things as the Spirit led him, as the Spirit guided him through. And that makes more sense. The Spirit guided him through. And of course, it's possible that this conversation with Gehazi, you know, as he kept it, this, we don't know. But the king says, tell me all the great things about Elisha. Well, gee, that must have been some story. So he starts to tell them his motive was nothing but curiosity, but it was significant because of the king of Israel. It was a great testimony. He knew that God was in the actions of Elisha, given evidence that he was also in the word of Elisha. God was with Elisha and God was with Elisha's word. Elisha was a man of God. The woman came and made her request at the exact time Gehazi told the king about the miracles. This was perfect timing, God's ordained plan. Isn't it neat how God works? Isn't it neat how God always does these things according to his purpose? I've said this a million times. He's never late. He's never early. But he's always on time. He's always on time. I love that about God. He restores everything that she had. And all the proceeds from the field that day she left, the king understood that if God was obviously supportive of this woman, then it made sense to give him his support at her request. It was her obedience to God's word that she was not penalized. I want to make that clear. It was her obedience to God's word that kept her from being penalized. On the other hand, those who disobey the word of the Lord are in for a tougher time. Those who disobey the Lord are in for a tougher time. And as we come to this part of chapter 8, I want to show you the wickedness of the human heart. The wickedness of the human heart. God is gracious. His infinite mercy is there. His grace is flowing forward. We see the beautifulness of how he can go and work on your behalf. But now we come to this section, and we see an old friend... Well, and an enemy. He can't decide what he wants to be. Let's look at 7 through 9. Then Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, was sick. And was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. And the king had said to Haziel, Take a present in your hand, and go to meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? So Haziel went to meet him and took a present with him, a very good thing of Damascus, 40 camel loads. And he came and stood before him and said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? I love it. I don't know if you remember in 1 Kings 19, when the Lord met Elijah on Mount Horeb, he basically gave him three fold commission. He was to anoint Haziel as king of Syria. He was to anoint Jehu, king of Israel. I'm talking about Elijah, excuse me. And he was to anoint Elisha to minister as his successor. 
We read about that in 1 Kings 19. Obviously, Elijah didn't get to anoint Haziel as king. So Elisha is questioned by Ben-Hadad. It took not only great courage, but great faith for Elisha to go to the king. Why? The king didn't like this guy much. Every time you turn around, the king was trying to kill him. He didn't like the way he came against him. He didn't like what he said. But even though Elijah had been against the king, he healed Naaman, who was the king's commander. And the last time we saw him, what did he do to the Syrian army? What did he do with the Syrian army? He let them go. He captured them all, remember, and he fed them, and then he let them go. So why wouldn't this guy be friendly to him? They always tried to capture or kill Elisha, but since God miraculously delivered him so many times, he was now respected, and he was welcome into the king's court. He was welcome on this account. Wanting to know the outcome of his present illness, the king asked, the king of Syria asked the prophet with this extravagant gift. Did you see what he gave him? Forty camel loads? That's quite a gift. Forty camel loads? Elisha gets a revelation from the Lord. Let's read verses 10 through 13. And Elisha said to him, go say to him, you shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has showed me that he will really die. Hmm. Then he set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed. The man of God wept. And Haziel said, why is my Lord weeping? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their straw holes you will set on fire and their young men you will kill with the sword and you will dash their children and rip open the women with child. So Haziel said, but what is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? And Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you will become king over Syria. Haziel went to Elisha and he said, my master, King Hadad, wants to know if he's going to recover from this illness. And Elisha gave him the old good news, bad news trick. The good news is you're going to recover. And the bad news is you're going to die. (laughs) You're going to recover, but you're going to die. You're not going to die from this illness that's taking place. You're going to die from something else. It's the old good news, bad news. God gave Elisha this insight more than the health of the king of Syria. He was also inevitable and ultimately God-ordained judgment that would unfold against God's people. Elisha rightly said that the king was going to die and he was going to recover too. However, he saw that the same person he was speaking to would engineer the assassin of King Hadad and then a total, total mass killing of Israel. It was horrible. This is how true Elisha's statement was. We know that the king does recover from his illness, but we know he dies. Look what happens to Elisha. Look what Elisha does. He comes into a stare and he's staring at Haziel. He breaks down into tears. He's overwhelmed because of what is going to happen. I know the evil you're going to do. I know the area, this was such a dramatic personal confrontation between the prophet and this high official. Elisha stares at him because he had a prophetic knowledge of future events and how this man was going to trouble all of Israel to the point of weeping. You are You've been listening to a teaching from the book of 2 Kings with Pastor Dave Shank on a sure hope. There's a theme that you notice throughout this book. 
A person's actions have consequences. In the case of the majority of kings in this book, it was evil actions that incurred negative consequences. Do you think God enjoys handing out consequences for sin? On the contrary, just as a parent would prefer willful obedience, God desires for people to seek after Him and follow what He says because it's best for them. When that isn't the case, it grieves Him to put forth discipline, but it's always with a heart for people to come back to Him for their good. If you missed any part of today's teaching or you'd like to listen to additional messages from Pastor Dave, visit AssureHopeRadio.com. Perhaps as you were listening, you realized that you have some questions about what you heard. We'd be happy to talk with you and provide some resources to answer your questions. Give us a call at 609-884-5821. That's 609-884-5821. In addition to that, you're welcome to email us at info at capewatchradio.com with any questions, concerns, or prayer requests. Would you rather talk to us in person? Then think about joining us this Sunday for a time in God's Word at Calvary Chapel, Cape May. Everything you need to know is on our website, assurehoperadio.com. Thank you again for taking time to learn from the book of 2 Kings today. We hope you'll join us again on Assure Hope.